0: you know that neither the Greeks nor the Romans were
1: capable of using the concept of zero? It was your ancestors, the Mayans, who first contemplated the zero. Absence of the man. Your story.
2: You burros have math in your blood. Watch out the don't
0: Okay, we're recording.
3: Greetings, dysfunctionals. Once again, I am Ernesto Morales.
0: And I'm Alex Yanish.
3: And in this episode of The Reality Dysfunction, we're going to be chopping it up with two real Chicanosauri and not the vegan kind either, the real meat eaters, Chicanosaurus rex.
0: Danielle Asuna is a longtime activist in the Chicano movement, a former member of the Raza Unida party and creator of the bombshell presentation, 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance. As a member of the Raza Unida party, Danielle was part of a delegation that met with Yasser Arafat and other officials in the Palestinian Liberation Organization to discuss issues between Chicanos in the United States and Palestinians.
3: Dr. Nora Salas is a longtime friend of mine. She is an assistant professor of history in Grand Rapids, Michigan. A student activist at the University of Michigan, Dr. Salas was a founder of the Chicano Development Center in Detroit, a member of the Brown Beret chapter at that time, and in the early 2000s returned to school at Michigan State, where we both enrolled in the MSW program and then in the Chicano Latino Studies PhD program, where she and I were members of the first cohort. And now you know the fighters. Let's get ready. Let's get to it. Brother Osuna, how you doing?
2: Doing fine. How are you doing?
3: Good. You've been around a while. You've seen a lot of different um, oh disputes or fights or changes, name changes in the Chicano movement. What do you make of this uh, recent Mecha kerfuffle?
2: Um I haven't really given it a lot of thought, but I have thought about it. I mean, I understand it's the rationale for wanting to change. I, I really do, because if you look at Islam and the whole question of Islam, it was always to... Reunite with the, um, with Mexico. That was the whole idea of a slide that it was formally um, uh, Mexico. And so I can understand where that becomes a question. I can understand where Chicano become a question. But if they remember that the term Chicano is unique, and it is a term that uh, came about uh, as a term of resistance more than anything else. Because I just remember recently, I was talking, I was at a, festival here in Fresno and there was a young man at a table he was selling t-shirts and I said hey how come this t-shirt doesn't say him and, and uh, his uh, partner told me well he's from Colombia you know and so I just said well that has no, that's not a problem I mean I've known thousands of people from all over the United States all over the world all over the Western Hemisphere that call themselves him because they understood what the real term meant. It doesn't necessarily mean uh Mexican born in America. That was all just stuff that they came up with. But what it meant was a term of resistance, a term to not accept what was um given to us by the dominant culture. And okay. That's basically I believe it.
3: All right. Dr. Salas, what do you make of this?
1: Well, I thought it was interesting that it was happening right now. Um, in this moment in time, you know, my, my first thought actually was it's odd that, you know, it's been a long time since I was a student activist, I es- and I haven't really worked directly with any machistas in maybe even a decade, but I estimate it took about, about 12 hours for me to find out <laughs> through the magic or dystopia of the internet, depending on your point of view, that this happened. And so processing that, it's kind of an interesting question just in and of itself, right? It maybe shows some of the reach and significance of Mecha for a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of people who had an experience in Mecha. I mean, ultimately, my conclusion at this point, having thought about it for a while, is if people who are current students want to change their organization, then they should go ahead and do that. But... Some of the dialogue that has come out, especially on social media, has been really centered on the idea that Chicanos aren't indigenous, and I completely reject that, (laughs) and find it very problematic, painful. I'll admit it, I find it painful, and also really incredibly short-sighted.
3: Yeah. I I mean, I totally agree with both of you. I think that if people want to change the name of their organization, that, I mean, I don't really... I actually don't really have anything to say about that. I mean, there's a, a part of me that feels a little stingy about it because I was in Mecha, but I'm not anymore and I'm never going to be again. I've also found that a lot of the rhetoric around uh, the name change really centers on this attack on the uh, alleged or perceived indigeneity of Chicanos, Mexicans living in the United States or Mexicans themselves or even the idea of Aslan as a, um, you know, really as a as a revolutionary concept. I mean, thinking of, you know, Aslan as a place or um, a land base or whatever that uh, Chicanos are using as a way of imagining or demanding sovereignty. It seems, I agree with you, a little short-sighted. And I don't know, I'm a little perplexed as to, like, where this, you know, comes from right so back in 92 danielle you did this uh presentation that is uh still famous to this day and you traveled all over the country doing that but the really the basis of that presentation was the indigeneity of chicanos in the in the united states i mean how how did you come about really coming to that conclusion what was happening with rasu Unida at the time what sort of impact did that have on you in terms of how you um it had a
2: big impact on me. yeah can you tell us about it well one i look at it from the standpoint it really wasn't what i wanted to get across what what people took out of it was i mean i did want to challenge the idea of us not being indigenous <laughs> now there's some reality to do that, but everything that we re everything that we go into and we research and every every way every direction that we go back, it's all based on European concepts. All of it. I mean, if you go back and you do your lineage, uh, let's say you go through what's this newest organization that does it, ancestry.com. Yeah, they do it from a European perspective. So, in other words, if your great-great grandfather raped you. When you raped your mother. Well, that was that was part of the process, he's, well, he's your great great grandpa, and that's the way it that's my sister took it back that way, and that's the way it goes, that's the way it went. I just recently went to um, a Yaki seminar where the Yakis were um, registering people open registration. So I went there, and they the first registration opened, I think it was in '98, and uh, even then I didn't bother because why did I need to be a card-carrying Indian in order to prove that I was Indian? I didn't see any benefit to it. I didn't see anything else. Yeah. I went back later on. I went to go do it. And uh, they said, if I could prove some way that my great-great-grandfather or somebody within my family was related to him, then I can't prove it, then I could do it. But that would be the only way. And so, I mean, what they're looking for is purity they're doing the same thing that white people are doing. That, that's exactly what they're doing. They're looking for purification. So if we're looking for purity, then what are we looking for? I mean, what, what are we, are we not human beings? I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, um, the presentation, people people took it literally that, um, I mean, that's what brought about the whole movement of um, that we're all indigenous now. You know, I mean, I mean, that's why Mitchell wants to change the name. That's why all, all this came about, because of that. Yeah. And I'm going, that's, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. The point was to show, I mean, I remember a woman coming up to me at ASU. And she told me, I'm so glad, Danielle, that you did this. presentation." And I didn't openly think about what she had told me, but I understood what she was saying. She was glad that I gave the presentation as a Chicano, not as a quote-unquote pure Indian. So, I mean, what are they telling us? They're telling us if your grandfather happened to be white and he raped your, uh, your mother, that's your fault. That's what they're saying to us. That's yeah. what they're saying to us. And that's what white people are saying to us. So we're in the middle. Yeah, We'll never get anywhere. And I saw it with the Trump uh, Organization uh, the Trump challenges when he was campaigning and all the violence was going around his speeches and stuff so on and so forth and um i didn't like what i saw and it wasn't the violence that bothered me it was the lack of reaction or the lack of response to the violence on behalf of chicago or on behalf of uh, indigenous people
3: i i would have to agree with that it's always the the lack of Re- organized response that concerns me even more. I mean, the white, well, I mean like white folks being, white boys being violent is that's, that's not, that's like anticlimactic. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that there's fucking, there's history books full of that shit. Yep. You know, I mean, the, the question isn't, are, you know, these white boys, you know, going to make America great again? I mean, if they can make it great again, they're definitely going to make it great again. Right. Cause it's good times, mm-hmm. you know, let the good times roll. Yeah, the real question is why don't we have some sort of an organized response? And Nora, you were saying earlier. I think this kind of leads back to what you were saying that it seems sort of short sighted on the part of. Um, I mean, let's let's uh, let's not even just pick on the machistas. I mean, I think there's a lot of people, even outside of the mecha circle, who think the same way. I think it's one of the reasons why the students made the move that they did. Um, but what what's so short sighted about it?
1: Well, I think that quite a few on social media and some of them have been interviewed on some major radio programs um, who object to the idea that Chicanos are indigenous do so from the perspective of people from Mexico, some from Central America who have a really direct link to their own indigenous community. They can name you know that I come from, for example, in, in you know, in this hypothetical person, they're a Zapotec person. They have this other real direct connection to a particular group, a familial connection, right? And that's great. And you know, they carry that with them, and they bring that when they, people come to the United States um, and bring that with them. And I applaud all of their efforts to maintain that connection, keep it alive, and to pass it on. To their descendants and future descendants, but the reality is that the project of making us mestizos is an ongoing project. It's been going on since you know the late, the early 1600s, and it's still happening today, right? And what is a mestizo? For a lot of that time period, a mestizo is a native person who leaves an indigenous community, oftentimes not by choice, but through violence and economic pressures of various kinds. They go to a city and they change their name to a Spanish name, and they get baptized, and they start eating cheese, and they get a job, and, <laughs> right? and then suddenly, one day, they're mestizo. Right? So, but that, that process, it's still going on. It hasn't stopped. And so, and it's not going to stop, right? And this incredible, assimilative, violent, colonial, juggernaut is coming for them. These in, these people who are like, I'm the real Indian and you're not because you're Chicano. It's coming for them and their children and their grandchildren. And I understand if they're terrified. It is scary. Yeah. Right, And it's erasure that's coming for them. And I... You know, if they're successful at like, keeping their connection to their indigenous community strong, that's great. But if they think they're not gonna lose anybody, they'll be the first. And I hope they are. If they're the first generation that doesn't lose anyone, I hope that they're successful. That's great. But right now, the message they're giving out to their descendants who decide, you know, down the line when they're just some pocha, like myself, and they want to know. What's up? Right? Yeah. Their, their connection to indigenous people, you know, and they come upon their words of their own ancestors. What are they going to hear? You're not really indigenous anymore because you lost this connection to this particular nation or tribe?
3: Yeah, it does seem a little self-defeating.
1: The only the only place this can end is extinction through erasure. That's the only place this can end. Yeah. And no, I reject that idea. And you know, it's it's happening right now. Right? There are people right now who are 19, 20, they're Mm -hmm. in college, maybe they're thinking about going and joining MECHA, and they know that their parents or their grandparents spoke what sometimes they call a dialect. Mm -hmm. which when Mexicans use that term, mostly they mean some indigenous language. And a lot of times they don't even think of it as a language because it's like so ingrained not to think of ourselves as indigenous people with our own peoplehood. And they are going to come on these words of these other people, most, a lot of them Mexican people, some Central American people who have a real connection to a nation, just rejecting them. From trying to turn away from colonization.
3: Yeah, yeah. I
1: okay. mean, I don't, I don't understand who gains from slamming that door.
3: Well, it doesn't really appear from all of the debate that's happening that any anybody's going to gain. I don't see how anybody could.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just hearing you talking about mestizo as a process, and it's really um, ignoring that there is a process of colonization and it sounds like what's really happening is a, is a giving in. And I would, from the question you're asking right there, who's gaining from this? Like, it just, it just makes colonization instead of many steps, two steps. Um, I I, I think that's really the thing that's happening right there is what Mm -hmm. it seems like to me.
1: Like you think it makes it faster.
0: Yeah, definitely. Instead of like a continued resistance and continued understanding of those people in between, it, it, it totally takes, takes them out of the conversation. Um, just like, you know, the like things like blood quantum do is I think it's it's another step of that is what it seems like to me. I mean, I'm hearing that this is a conversation that's happening, but it seems that it's reflective, not just of like student activists. But I was wondering what you all think of like, where does this conversation come from? these conversations aren't existing in a bubble of 18 through 22 year olds. Like this is not just happening with students, but I think this is happening with people that were involved with Mecha in the nineties, like uh, Nora and Ernesto Um, and, you know, people like Danielle. Um, Could you all speak to that and maybe address where this is coming from? Not just of people who are in college right now, but of older generations, or is that even something you see?
3: Well, I mean, one of the things that that I've seen and I've kind of watched over the last couple of weeks in some of the debates that that are happening, there is this uh, conversation that's going on, this dialogue about who does or did more in their activism or uh, who does or did more in the community. I think that those types of conversations, I, I think, are almost inescapable because older generations are always looking at younger generations and saying, Oh, you know, back in my day, we did it like this and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, and I mean, actually to tell you the truth, I'm kind of with those kids on that one. Who the fuck cares, you know, (laughs) how you did it back in the day. I mean, you know, I remember when, you know, I was young and people were telling me "Oh, back in the day and I was like, yeah, you know, back in the day can kiss my ass. Right. But, one thing that I do think is interesting is that I think that there's, there's really this propensity on the part of people to romanticize their activism and maybe sort of like magnify it in their own head. I think that what we really see, and uh, I know that what I've really seen over the past 25 years, is that there is always there always exists a very hardcore nucleus of people who are going to carry an agenda forward. And that outside of that hardcore nucleus of people, there's just kind of, there are people who weave in in and out of that. And I, I think that's a lot of what you see in the backlash on uh, Facebook and Twitter and stuff are people who are just like thinking about their own entry into the, into the chicanada, understanding chicanismo, you know, feeling that sense of power for the first time in their lives as they, you know, confront institutions of power. I mean, I, I get that. I I really get that. And I've spent almost 30 years of my life doing exactly those types of things. But what I also know, too, is that outside of those feelings of nostalgia, what are people really doing to build political power? Mecha has a lot of potential, but if it's not the way that that potential is going or the direction that it's going to grow in anymore, then what that really means is that for those of us who feel really strongly about this. I mean, we have a responsibility. And even more than a responsibility, we have an opportunity to do the kind of organizing that we think should have been done, or that could be done. I mean, think about this. This is one of the most disappointing things of all. Who's the first Mexican guy that's gonna run for president? It's freaking Julian Castro. Are you freaking kidding me? That guy is boring. And, I mean, it's just like, yeah, okay, your mom was really cool, but you spent your whole life just like sucking up to the white establishment. Well, that's going to be the first Mexican that runs for president of the United States. If you ask people to make a list of Chicano or Latino leaders, like national leaders, they can't make a list because there aren't any. And I'm not even saying that there needs to be. What I'm saying is there aren't any. And so the question, I think, you know, it all goes back to how are we building organization? How are we building mass organization? How are we building mass mobilization? And, you know, the answer is is that we're not. I mean, if we were, then DACA wouldn't be an issue. Dreamers wouldn't be an issue. I mean, there's over 40 million, there's close to 50 million Latinos in the United States today. And we have this battle that we can't overcome for some people to get citizenship. No, there's a, there's a bigger issue, and part of it is our, um, our own inability to organize for that sort of power. The other part is that, well, this might be another part of the discussion, but I believe that there's a concentrated effort to um, maintain disruptive politics within the Chicano-Latino community and not necessarily other the part of the Chicano-Latino community. I believe that's the sort of thing that's going in. That's how I would begin to answer that question.
2: You know... I thought of a couple of things when you were talking, and I uh, thought about what you were talking about. And stuff. but I remember uh, Kwame Ture telling me, I think it was probably around 1998, just before he died. Uh, he had already had cancer, and it was one of his last speeches he did. He said that we are just moving stimuli around in our brain. He says we're organizing, but he says, on the most part, we're just moving stimuli around in our brain. He says we're taught by this system. It teaches us what we what we know. I mean, and we read books and stuff, but how accurate is that stuff? How accurate is the books that we read, the historical books that we read? How accurate is everything? And if we're just moving stimuli around in our brain, what are we coming up with as far as answers? Maybe that's why we don't have the responses we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's up to us to, to make sure that those responses come about. Uh, although, how do you, I mean, other than uh, being like Che Guevara and, you know, and, or Fidel Castro and actually organizing revolution, an armed revolution, how are you going to do anything? I remember um, something to the Yeserara planned for me. He said that we have to break the barrier here, fear. And what he meant was, not the fear that everybody goes through every day, you know, when somebody comes up and starts with something like that. He meant that the fear that stops us from moving forward, from really doing something, the fear for your life. Right. The fear to be able to do something regardless of what it's going to cost you. And um, I think we're breaking through these little barriers, and little fear, you know, here and there. And I we think we're being bold, especially with social media. People are doing stuff there that I can't believe. And this, this generation is doing something I can't believe. I'm thinking, you know, where are we with that? Where where is that stuff going? I mean, it's I don't see it going anywhere. The only thing that's that social media did for me, the only thing that Facebook gave did for me, put me in, in, in touch with old people, old friends. That that's all it did. Just put me in touch with old friends. That's why I dropped off, dropped out. You know, I just put my daughter and son there occasionally and that's about it. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. That's
3: how I feel about a lot of my old friends too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh it was good catching up with you. All right, block.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I need to tell things right here. <laughs> put this on Facebook. <laughs>
3: what about it, Dr. Salas?
1: I think I lost track of the original question, or I mean I think from what Danielle said, right, definitely. I think the social media thing has twisted the kinds of conversations we have about politics. I'm no expert here in this at all, but there seems to be this idea that say declaring your opinion before the world is some sort of form of action.
3: Right, right, right.
1: And I, I'm not sure what people are thinking that they maybe they think their their word has a lot of power. Right, they just say it and like they're like a wizard or something I don't know but that's not how it works you know if you want to make your world real in the world you have to do the work and it takes time you got to call people on the phone you have to meet with people in person you have to make lists you gotta have 22 meetings that last way too long you know these are all things that are a necessary part of trying to make a change You know, of any kind, I think this, I think social media has really, I'm hesitant to draw conclusions because I am a historian and it's really easy, you know, for people to say, well, this is different than before and really, is it very different from before? I mean, I don't know, but I'll draw a conclusion anyway. You know, it used to be that we, when we organized in the nineties, we would confront this like movie idea of what protesting did and how it worked. Right, in the movie idea, like the one that people had seen the most when we used to organize in the 90s was the Malcolm X movie, right? And the movie idea was, you know, you have like a personal transformation and then you talk to some people and it's like really fast, right? Because if they made a real movie of how it really works, it'd be five fools sitting around a room arguing for an hour about, you know, what are the ten points gonna be? Or who's gonna talk and why? You know, it would go on for years and it would seem that nothing really happened, right? So that was the vision we used to confront. But now I think people are confronting this idea that if they just say things that they can make it real in the world. I don't think that that's how it works really. I mean and to your point, Todd, like how come we can't do this? How come we can't do that? We have X many people, whatever. Well, I mean, a lot of those people aren't really invested in any way in change. Agreed. I think there's a lot of compromises that people make. I make a lot of compromises in my day-to-day life of what I should be doing or not doing. You know, when I try to be involved as as I can, one thing about this time that is good is a lot of people are seeing some of the things that are happening here in the Trumpocalypse. And they are compelled to act, um, to do something. And so the question about, like mentioned, this name change is, I mean, what are they telling people to do as a result of making this change, you know? And I don't think, I mean, I think a lot of the students in the group, from what I, I read, went back and read their what's that thing called, their prop, their explanation of why they did this? Yeah. I don't know. There's this technical name for this. Maybe you can insert that in here in some sort of editing process. I don't know. Um, <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, their main thing seemed to be they wanted to be a Latino organization. Right. It didn't sound like in their official statement that their main thing was to argue about how we weren't really indigenous people. But, the people who seem like really excited about this change on social media that are just gleeful that they're rejecting Chicano identity in Aslan are people who think of us. Well, the pr- phrase they've been using is we're pretend Indians. Pretendians. Uh, yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I saw that. I yeah. love it. I was like, that's funny. We're the
1: We're the real settlers, you know. <laughs> those are the people who are really excited about this change. And I think they should think about that. You know, you're not responsible for what, how everybody in the world reacts to things that you want to do. But if a certain group of people is just gleeful at what you've done and that's their position, you need to think about that. You need to reflect upon that.
3: Yeah.
0: I, I think something I also saw in their explanation or whatever was uh, – trying to really put forward like a rejecting of the national identity, like the nationalism of these things. Uh, like, did you see the thing where they were comparing Aslan to Israel? I mean, maybe that's not exactly fair. No, that's exact- that. no that is what they that's
1: said. That's
0: exactly what they yeah. said. Yes. I yeah. mean, I, I think not just making it a Latino organization, but like somehow rejecting the idea of like nationalism and nation and, um, maybe we could hear what each of you has to think about what nation means to you all.
3: There's two different things that are happening when we talk about nation. And it's important that we're clear that we're talking either about nation state or we're talking about nation because a nation isn't necessarily a nation state. Now I'm not sure that I have a problem with either one of them. I think that the idea of nation is an idea that clearly is put forward in third world liberation writings for most of the 20th century. The notion of escaping colonialism is usually posited or framed within the idea of nation or the the reemergence of the nation. I'm not exactly sure how you defeat settler colonialism without developing that type of identity for large groups of people now what has happened over the years there have been some people who i would call very bad actors that they have behaved badly and have identified as nationalists and i think as a result um have somehow cemented the idea in people's minds that nation is um synonymous with uh homophobia or misogyny or transphobia. I just don't think that that is true at all. I don't think that there's any sort of empirical evidence that shows that those things are equal to each other or that one follows the other or that it's part of the essential nature of what a nation is. I do think, however, that as I've said in a recent speech that I did here at Prescott, that one definition of nation is the largest grouping of people that can command the loyalty of the individual. I think that that is a very good definition because what it actually does is it really leaves open what nation can be, right? I mean, if we think about the tremendous strides that have been made in the Chicano movement, the Chicanx movement against misogyny, against homophobia, against transphobia, huge, huge strides that have been made. What we know for sure is that those strides haven't been made Because of the benevolence of settler colonialism. And so I think that it is something that we need to think about. I mean, if people are identifying themselves as Chicana, Chicano, Chicanx, and they are working within organizations like Mecha or like Knox, right, that specifically identify them as uh, Chicana, Chicano, Chicanx, then um, they cannot dismiss the. the implicit nature of the nationalism that they're practicing and what that nationalism has allowed to happen in terms of the fight against misogyny, against, uh, homophobia, against transphobia. I think it's, I think that's short-sighted on their part to say that that happened. Those, those fights happened in spite of, Mm -hmm. instead of through of,
0: I think what you were saying, too, uh, about bad actors, specifically in that, I I think that there's also a bad faith argument going on about nationalism that's happening specifically in that paper that uses the example of what could happen if a nation is formed, you know, Aslan is formed. I I hope the listener is familiar with the the text. We could put a a link in there. Um, It's only a couple of pages, but I'd really like to hear, Danielle, I mean, you as someone who met with Palestinian leaders, do you see Aslan... It's more of a liberation movement, like Palestine's nation, or as is Israel is a, it, it will create another colonizing force. Because I think that's what, the big crux of this argument is about. and I'd really like to hear your opinion on that. Are, are you familiar with the, the the piece that was put out?
2: Just
0: uh, it. It was put out two years ago, but it's been circulating as. Um, in the in the mentioned documents that they're putting forth, why they did these things, they're using that as their um, one of the readings about it. And specifically, what what I got from it is that nationalism leads to things like Israel and the uh, oppression of a group of people, and it just uh, leads to a different kind of state oppression. Who
2: uh, it
3: out this this kid? Who was a uh, Bachista? Um, I can't remember his name, but I mean that's that's really the essence of the argument: is that if Aslan were ever created, that it would just be another Israel, except for that our Palestinians would be the uh, Native Americans that are here in the United States.
2: Well, I don't see that per se happening, and I look at Lasithia, where I found where I found my beginning. Mida yeah. was a political party, but it didn't; it never made it to ballot status. So it it reduced itself to just a political organization that uh, educated youth and educated itself about the politics that were going on in the U.S. and the world, in the Western Hemisphere. The one thing that was unique was it was the first organization, even before the left in this country, that took a pole position Pope in position, and that's, that's what gained it the invitation to the Middle East that everything that happened was because of that in 1980. And that's how that whole thing came about. I mean, all the people that were involved seriously saw themselves as revolutionaries. They literally did. It's interesting to see the division of what went on in the with Las what happened in World Mexico with Las what happened in California with Las Mira. There was a big difference depending on who was the leadership. Who was the state chair for Las Mira in California? Who was the state chair uh, for Las Mira in um Mexico? Who was the state chair in and actually in Colorado it was a crusade for justice. It wasn't they, they were all registered La Mida, but that was about it. That would be as far as it went. Everything they did, they did it in really the better of the state. It just depends. I, I don't see it becoming the state of Israel. I don't see it just becoming the state of Israel. And I don't see it. I mean, I don't see that Atslan is the whole question anymore. I don't see that it was ever the question. It was just an issue that was being, that was brought up because that's what I was talking about. I mean, we would have taken the Pope, uh, Pope position in the position. It had nothing to do with what we were talking about at that time. A is just a banner or something to hold a fist up to. You know, in other words, in other words, we're I mean, even mecha, even the uh, founding of Mecha, it found itself it on its and it found itself. It became a whirlwind, if you will. A whirlwind of what was going on around the around the southwest at the time. the Chicano got a movement at the time. The US quickly learned from the Black Cal power period of the sixties that what it needed to do was quash, the kind movement. So that's why in 72, it had the division, the infiltration, everything else that went on with uh, the that like a did with any organization. I don't see, I just don't see that that's what would happen. Although I would always argue that there was only 3 million Palestinians. They were scattered all over the world. I mean, they were in refugee camps in, in Lebanon. There were refugee camps in Syria. There were refugee camps everywhere the U.S. would do what it did. I mean, they had their own schools, they had their own medical, their own doctors, everything, right. everything. Right. And yeah. there were 40 million of us, and we had nothing. Yeah. We have nothing in the Southwest. Yep. We don't, I mean, we don't own anything. Yeah. So what are we talking about? Yeah. Why are we arguing that that would ever happen?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Palestinians are a good example of nation building. A very good example of it, yeah.
2: Because they still don't have a nation.
3: Yeah. No. They have an authority. I
2: mean, yep. they try to build it. They wipe them out. They're to wipe them out.
1: Yeah. I did read that, that document where the person said, I think it's somebody from the Northwest, Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Said that if Aslan was created, that it would end up being a colonizer like Israel. And I think that it's important to, I don't think that's true, but nobody knows. And I mean, removing it from the National organization is not a way to find out what Aslan would be. It's actually a way to never find out what Aslan would be if it were to exist in that kind of sense as a nation state, which I do think there's a difference between a nation and a nation state. All nations are created by people. Um, One of the things that I think we always need to think about when we think about what would Aslan be if it was more developed and had some sort of governmental authority. Well, there's a couple things. One is that nationalism is a weapon, right? right. It's a weapon created by people. A weapon can be used for self defense. It can be turned against you. It can harm others. It can commit brutalities. And there are many brutalities and it's crimes against humanity that been, have been committed under the guise of nationalism. But there are also other things that have been produced by people who are nationalists. We all live in one today called the United States of America, which is a nation that we live in, that exists in the world, not the wizard world created by social media pronouncements. Um, and we gotta, you know, we gotta deal with that somehow. And I think that one of the things that Las Unidas did was try to deal with that, right? Some through the electoral system, Some through trying to build alternate institutions of power. You know, the Chicano movement tried to deal with that through mobilizing this idea of Chicanismo and teaching people that there was another way to be that was not just a subject of what, for most of American history, and I think one could argue today, right, a subject of a nation that really did not include a place for us other than as a colonized people right yeah so i think that that's something to think about a little bit there um i think we also need to remember that there is this history that the colonizer makes and a big part of the history that the colonizer makes and i don't want to get too professory here right but according to Mary Louise Pratt, who is this sort of English professor, analysis person, right? Um, you know, there is this colonizer's history, and she looks at the work of African anti-colonialists like Fanon and Césaire, and she says that it is from the colonizer's history that the colonized learn their, of their natural savagery of their unchanging lack of civilization. That's the colonizer's history. The right. colonizer's history convinces us that anything that we make will inevitably lead to ruin. And they're the ones that started history. And I can't help but see that when people talk about Aslan, like it would all be shit. Okay, well, first of all, what do you think we're living in now? You know, little around. word. Rap, word. Right? But secondly, there is, there is this, always this element of, why do you think if we built it with our hands that it would be worse than what was built? You know, I mean, what was created by people who did not see us as full human beings, right? And I'm a historian of the United States. And, you know, the founders, like what they like to say, right? Um, Didn't agree on a lot of things. They had some good ideas, some of which we benefit from today, but for the most part, they did not see a place for us as full citizens of the nation that they put it on the tracks, right? But to train, they're the one who put it on those tracks, right? And if I have to choose, right, not that we're, I don't know if this choice is coming, if I have to choose like which founders Right? Which track do I want to be on? Right? Why is it that we think that the one that was put on the train, you know, created by Hamilton and the slave owner, Washington, and Patrick Henry and, you know, at least Quincy Adams had something good to say about Mexico being a font of liberty, right? But, I mean, why do we think that track's going to end in a better place than the one put on the, you know, put on the track by people like Osuna or, Alorista or, you know, some of these other people, right? Like, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange thing. I don't know. I guess that maybe they think the meti- the, the people who wrote that document, who we probably should have put their name in here somewhere. I don't know. They think they're going to create an, a non-national thing. Is that what they think?
3: Well, I- I think that that is what they think. I think that what they probably don't realize, and I say, I think they don't realize it. Well, I think they, I say, I think they don't realize it because I've actually never had a conversation with them. So I can't say for sure if they realize it or not. Um, The
0: conversation happens all the time about how nation is bad and people never think past
3: that. Okay. All right. So then um, I think that what they don't, I don't think what they don't realize is that when they make an argument like that, all they're actually doing is reifying the liberal sort of politics that we engage in. They're reifying liberalism, neoliberalism across the globe, uh, because what they're not doing is offering an alternative to the current settler colonial- colonialism or to the idea of capitalism. I mean, they're just saying this is how we can get along better within those structures. And of course, I mean, if you call yourself Latino, you can get along better within this structure than if you say, I'm Chicano, I'm indigenous. Because when you say that, then you got a problem. And it's not just with those people, it's with the people who run this place too. Because if settler colonialists are the ones who began history, as Pratt and so many other people say, then what that means is that our presence here as indigenous people um, is the uh, constant threat to that hegemonic narrative i mean we're we are the we are the fly in the ointment which calls for that erasure and i mean i i would say you know since the practice of in at least in the united states since the practice of mass human slaughter has gone out of style it took several centuries but it has gone out of style you know there's still got to be a way to get rid of people you do that through this blood quantum but it's like Danielle was saying earlier, I mean, what is it that we're I mean, if we're if we're down to like who your granddaddy was, I mean, what are we talking about? You know, like what, what's going on here? You know? I mean, this is it's an interesting conversation. Our time is actually up too, you all. And so, um, sorry about that, but we need to um we need to keep these manageable. We'd like to thank everybody for listening. That's all the time that we have today. As always, I am Ernesto Morales.
0: I'm Alex Yanish. I'd like to thank the uh,
2: dysfunctionals.
3: We hope you guys tune in for the next one. We want to thank Dr. Nora Salas. And I was going to call you Dr. Daniel (laughs) Osuna. And the original profe, Daniela Osuna. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to talking to you guys again. In the meantime, stay brown. Later.